I knew it was coming. I knew this day was going to arrive. I knew that it was going to be a difficult day. I knew that it was going to be a hard subject on which to preach. Um, I actually planned this series on purpose, this Genesis 1 through 3 series, this Rise and Fall of Us All. I planned it on purpose so that I could deal with today's issue. Uh, I'll be honest, um, I don't like to deal with tough issues. I don't like to preach about tough issues. I am, um, in. there's a, a way of uh, categorizing personalities using animals, okay? And one of the animals of which someone can have a personality is that of the otter. I am an otter. I'm cute and I'm furry and um, I like to be liked. I want to be liked and just that's all I want is just like me. Okay, do you, do you like me? Does, there, does everybody like me, right? I just want to be liked by everyone. And when you have to preach tough issues, there's the fear that if I say something, because today's issue, today's sermon is going to be one where, I'll, I'll be honest, some of you might not come back. What? What are you talking about? There may be some of you who say, you know what, I don't agree with what he said, and it's, it's a deal breaker. I'm, I'm out. I hope that doesn't happen, but it's possible. And I'll be honest, it's not just that I want to be liked and I want you to like me. I want Jesus to be liked. I want people to like Jesus. I want people to love Jesus. And sometimes when we preach out of, out of the Bible, when we preach his word, People may go, well, I don't like Jesus very much because I don't like what he said. That's not what I want. I want people to like me. I want people to like Jesus. I want people to like GFCC. I want people to like God's word. I want people to love God's word and to read God's word and to obey God's word. But there are things in God's word that go against popular society, that go against popular culture, that go against what the society says is acceptable. And the reason is because we're sinners, and we have a sinful nature, and we want to do what we want to do. And sometimes that goes against what Scripture tells us to do. So today we're going to deal with a very tough issue as we talk about God's design for marriage. I have been wrestling with this sermon. I kid you not. Okay, every week one of my responsibilities is to uh, vacuum this room, okay? So uh, I'm a part-time custodian, and, and uh, thanks to Brandon and Fruits for vacuuming for me yesterday because I didn't feel good. Um, but when I vacuum this room, I preach. Some of my best sermon ideas come while with a vacuum in my hand. And so I'm vacuuming away going, oh, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say that, I'm going to talk about this, I'm going to talk about that. And then I get up here and it's like, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm a lot more bold with a vacuum in my hands. Maybe that's what I need is I need to get up here with my backpack back and just preach while I'm vacuuming, right? This is a tough one. This is a toughie. Um, we're going to talk about God's design for marriage. It is an important topic in our culture today, and it is one about which we need to talk. Um, we need to turn to God's Word uh, to read about His design for marriage, because it's God's design, and we'll get into that in just a little while. Um, but we're going to turn to God's Word, because God's Word is the standard for morality. God's Word is the standard for morality. It is objective truth based on God's will, it is not subjective opinion based on human whims. Okay, let me say that one more time. God's word is objective truth based on God's will, not subjective opinion based on human whims. We are studying Genesis chapters 1 through 3, and we've done this since the beginning of the year. It's called the rise and fall of us all, 
And today we are talking about what God planned, what God designed for marriage. And we're going to talk a little bit, uh, we're going to talk a lot a bit about marriage today and what God's design is for marriage. Okay? Uh, grab your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 18 through 25. And then also grab your bulletin and turn to page 3. You can take some notes, fill in some blanks on the handy-dandy outline. And we'll do that now. The first blank on your outline is God designed a helper for Adam. God designed a helper for Adam. Look at Genesis 2, 18 through 20. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So up until now, God had formed everything. He made everything, and he called everything good. He said, it's, it's all good. And then he created humanity and said, it's very good. So God has created this good creation, this very good creation, people and birds and animals and flowers and trees. He makes it all, it's all good. And then he creates it in humanity, it's very good. But as we read in Genesis 2, 18 through 20, something is missing. Creation is incomplete. Man is incomplete. God brings all the animals to Adam, and whatever Adam decides to call them, uh, that's their name. Come up with a platypus, Adam. I don't know. It just looks like a platypus. So God uh, brings all the animals to Adam. Adam names them all. But out of all the animals and everything that God has created, there is no suitable helper for Adam. Adam is incomplete. There is nothing that corresponds to Adam. Uh, and he was incomplete without a partner to help him. Uh, the Hebrew word helper literally means someone who helps or supports. Someone who helps or supports. David uses it of God in Psalm chapter 70, verses 1 and 5. Look at this. It says, Hasten, O God, to save me. O Lord, come quickly to help me. Yet I am poor and needy. Come quickly to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. I love that, that, that God is our help. And, and the same word is used of the helper that God is going to make for Adam. Uh, I like the New Living Translation of verse 18, of Genesis 2.18. Look at this. It says, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. I will make a helper who is just right for him. God is making, a, God making this helper for Adam tells me something about Adam. Uh, one, it tells me that Adam is lonely and that Adam was designed and created for relationship. And without the helper... Uh, he cannot have relationship that God intends. Uh, th and the other thing uh, is that Adam needed help. He needed a helper. And so God creates a helper for him. Uh, Adam is incomplete, and he needed a helper to complete him, one who corresponded to him. It also tells me something about God, that God loves Adam, and he has a desire for Adam to be in relationship, that God loves Adam, and he desires the best for him. The second thing it also tells me about God is that there are needs that Adam has that God can't fulfill. Now, God is capable of fulfilling almost every single one of our needs 
But we have a need for human companionship that, due to the fall, now we definitely cannot, uh, that we cannot have fulfilled by God. Our relationship with God is different after the fall, but there is a relationship that we have with, with other human beings uh, that God cannot fulfill. Adam's needs for this relationship can only be fulfilled by another human being, someone who corresponds to him, someone who is suitable for him, somebody who is a good fit for him, somebody who is just right for Adam. And God designed this helper to be just right for Adam. In God's infinite wisdom, he made an, a helper for Adam who would correspond to him. It's like two pieces of a puzzle. Okay, and you know, you have two, piece, two pieces of a puzzle. You, how many of you like to do puzzles? My little guy loves to do puzzles. He's got a 48-piece, four-foot by two-foot puzzle that he puts uh, together on the floor of uh, the universe, of the solar system. And he loves puzzles. And when he does puzzles, he, you know, he looks for the edges first, and, and then he finds the pieces, and, and they correspond to one another. They fit together. And that's how you know you're doing the puzzle, right? It's when the pieces fit together. And it, just like those pieces that come together, that is how it is with, with other human beings, with this relationship that God created for a helper for Adam that would correspond to him, that would complete him, this helper that God was going to design this helper that God designed was going to fit together with Adam. So he designed this uh, helper for Adam so that they would fit together and they would complete each other. The second blank on your outline is God designed a woman for Adam. God designed a woman for Adam. Look at Genesis 2, 21 through 23. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and perform surgery. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So God took part of Adam, and he made Eve. Now, why did God, I love this, uh, what Matthew Henry, commentator from long ago, said about this passage of scripture. Why did God make woman from Adam's side or from his rib? This is what Matthew Henry said. Look at this. The woman was made of a rib of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor his feet to be trampled by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near to his heart to be loved of him. Isn't that cool? I mean, that's just really sweet. And it's true. It's true that the woman's not supposed to rule over the man, and the man is not supposed to trample on the woman, but rather we are side by side. We correspond to one another. We complete one another. This woman that God created uh, was and made for Adam was specifically designed just for Adam. If Paul said something very similar in Ephesians 5, 25 through 30. He wrote, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. There are two ways that a man is called to love his wife. The first is as Christ loved the church. Well, what did Jesus do for the church? He died for the church, exactly. He died for the church. He gave up everything for the church. He sacrificed everything for the church. That is how men, husbands, are called to love their wives, to sacrifice for their wives, to love them so much that they are willing to do whatever it takes uh, for their wives 
uh, to, uh, that's the kind of love that we are to have for our wives. Jesus gave up his life for his bride. Now, is a man going to be called to physically die for his wife? Most likely not. But he needs to sacrifice something every day for his wife. And it is those selfish desires that we have. Guys, if, if you're like me, and I imagine that you are, that we have selfish desires. Men are selfish and self-centered in so many ways. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. And I'm, am I lying? I didn't think so. So, <laughs> as a guy speaking, I know that I have selfish desires and that I can be very self-centered and I can be self-oriented. And what God calls me to do, what Jesus calls me to do, is to sacrifice those selfish desires for my family, specifically for my wife. That I would be willing to give up anything and everything for her. Just as Christ gave up everything for the church, I have to be willing to give up everything for my wife. To put her needs above my own. Uh, to put her well-being before my own. To make sacrifices for her. Even when those sacrifices hurt, even when it's something that I don't want to do. And let me tell you, I have stuff that I want to do. I do. But I need to put her needs before my own. I need to put her wants before my own. I need to put her desires before my own. I need to sacrifice my selfish desires for my wife because I love her. It is a daily battle against the self to love our wives. But that is what God calls us to do. Now, the second way that we are called to love our wives, we are called to love them as Christ loved the church, and we are called to love them as we love our own bodies. Why? I love this. This is very important. Because the woman was taken out of man. She, it, as Adam said, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She, the, my wife is literally uh, taken out of my body. Not, not literally physically taken out of my body, but uh, the woman was taken out of man. We are uh, united in this way. Uh, just the woman was taken from the body of the man, and God made her from the man's body to correspond to the man. And so the woman that God designed and created and made corresponds to the man and completes the man. So men, we are, to call, we are called to love our wives uh, as Christ loved the church in a sacrificial way, and we are called to love our wives as we love our own bodies. So just as you would not mistreat your own body, don't mistreat your wife. The third blank on your outline, you're like, man, this is going quick. It's about to slow down. <laughs> the third blank on your outline is God designed a wife for Adam. God designed a wife for Adam. Look at Genesis 2, 24 and 25. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So God makes a special gift for Adam, and her name is Eve. Uh, God brought the woman to the man, and he made this gift for Adam and presented her to him as a special gift. How many of you love to get gifts? Oh, come on. Oh, I don't like getting gifts. Yeah, right. Everybody loves, especially like a, a, a gift that, you know, is, is it just, just blows your mind. You know, it's just like an amazing gift, an awesome gift. When someone puts a lot of time and thought into giving you a gift, and they, they really consider what you need and, and what you like and what you want. And they think about it and they, they put a lot of effort in, and they wrap it up in a, in a beautiful package. You know, that's what God did for Adam. He thought about this is what Adam needs and this is what Adam wants. And I'm going to put it in a beautiful package. I'm going to call it a woman. And he brought the, the gift to Adam. He brought this wonderful gift to him, this gift of Eve. And he brought her to him as this special gift um, that, uh, that God had for his creation, Adam. Um, 
we did a series this last fall uh, called Experiencing God's Dream for Your Marriage by Chip Ingram. Uh, it was a DVD series. It went 12 weeks. It took a little bit longer than that because of snow days and sicknesses and stuff like that. But anyway, we had this really great marriage series. And Chip talks about this in his DVD series, how God brought Eve to Adam as a precious gift to complete him. And guys, we need to treat our wives as the precious gifts that they are, uh, that, that have been given to us by God. We need to treat our wives as precious gifts. Your wife was made by God to complete you and to correspond to you. Uh, we, are, we are wired differently. How many of you have been married longer than a day? All right. You know, if you've been married longer than a day, that we are different. Men and women are different. We deal with things differently. We communicate differently. We feel things differently. We feel about things differently. For example, if you were to ask, if someone were to tell you, if someone came up to you and your wife and said, hey, uh, did you hear about this really bad accident on 8094? And the, the wife, my wife, when, when she hears about a bad accident, she'll ask the same question every time. Was everyone okay? And I'm like, what kind of car was it? Why? Because we're different. We see things differently. We feel things differently. My wife is very relational. She's very, very concerned about people. And I'll get around to the, is everybody okay question, but I want to know how bad, well, I mean, what kind of accident was it? Semi-rolling? <laughs> we're different. And that's okay. That's good. We correspond to one another. We complete each other. She makes me more tender-hearted. And that's why uh, God created us the way he did, the way he wired us, the way we did. Like two pieces of a puzzle, we fit together. Ladies, your husband is not your enemy. He is not your enemy. He was created by God to be your corresponding partner in marriage. This is repeated in the New Testament. Look at Ephesians 5.31. Uh, he quotes, Paul quotes Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Jesus also repeats this passage from uh, Genesis in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, when he was teaching about divorce. He says, haven't you read? He replied that at the beginning, the creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. God brought you to be together as husband and wife. We are designed for one another, designed to find fulfillment in one another. And when sin entered the world, I'll be honest, when sin entered the world, it messed everything up. And we're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about the fall of us all next week uh, as we talk about how sin messes everything up. And sin messed up the relationship between husband and wife. It puts a huge strain on the marriage relationship. At the very end of Genesis 2, in verse 25, it says that they were naked and they felt no shame. They were completely open and vulnerable and uh, honest with each other. There was total uh, nakedness, not just physical, but there was emotional and psychological and spiritual, uh, just completely open with one another, not having to hide anything. No deception, no lies, no, no hiding. And they were completely open with one another. We'll talk about that next week. But, you know, one of the things that we need to focus on in our relationships is our communication, is better communication. In that marriage series that we did last fall, I want to show you a little bit of a little exercise that you can do with your spouse, uh, with your husband or wife, uh, to increase communication. It's called the conference. You take 30 minutes to ask these three questions. You sit across from your spouse uh, and you ask these three questions. And, and this is very helpful. I remember 
uh, Shan and I did this, and it was it was very 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 vulnerable, uh, very emotional, um, and and so you ask these three questions, and uh, one parts uh, one partner. Uh, the husband sits across from the wife, and maybe he'll ask her the questions first, or maybe she'll ask him the questions first. And these three questions: the first is, "What are you concerned about?" And now, here's the thing: is that when you ask these questions, there is no, you know, really, or there's no response. There's no reply. It's the only thing that, that the one spouse says to the other is, "What are you concerned about?" And then they listen until he or she is done talking. What are you concerned about? The question is, "What do you wish?" In other words, how would you what how would you want to fix these concerns? If you could if you could control the world, what is your wish with these concerns? So what are you concerned about? What do you wish? And then the third question is what are you willing to do? Because it's not just, you know, I want a better house or I want a better job or I want you to have a better job. What are you willing to do in order to make this situation better? But if you will sit down once a week, once every other week and just Ask these three questions to each other. You will increase communication and vulnerability and honesty. And you'll, be able, you'll have better communication in your marriage. And it really works. It really does. A, a second one that I want to, uh, another helpful exercise that I want to uh, talk to you about, um, it comes from Rudy Giuliani's book, Leadership. And it's a book he wrote after 9-11 about his style of leadership in New York City. And one of the things that I, when I read this book that I took away from it was this idea of a daily meeting. Uh, Rudy would have a daily meeting with his most trusted uh, top officials. Um, and he would, it was an hour long, and I'm not going to ask you to give an hour. I want 15 minutes. Take a 15-minute daily meeting with your spouse. Kick the kids out. Turn off the television. Put down the Kindle. Put down the tablet. Step away from the Internet. And just sit down and look at each other and talk for 15 minutes. How was your day? What's going on? How are you feeling? How was work today? For 15 minutes, you look each other in the eyes and you just talk. For 15 minutes. If you will take 15 minutes a day and then you close it out by praying for each other. If you will take 15 minutes a day to talk and pray together, your relationship will get better. Your relationship will get better. You will do better communication and more honesty and more vulnerability and, and it will get better. Because the problem is we don't do that. We don't talk to each other. It, it's in passing. Hey, how you doing? I'm good, good. All right, see you later. That's not a marriage. That's not a relationship. I mean, you do that when you're in the hall at high school. Hey, what's up? Good. Yeah, yeah, see you. Passing classes. No, too often we're just like passing each other like ships in the night. It's like, where are you going? What are you doing? What is your life like? I miss you. If you'll take 15 minutes to just devote 15 minutes a day to each other, 15 minutes. Right? How many... How many What's that, about 90 minutes a week? Or no, 105 minutes, 105 minutes a week? <gasps> Don't save it up, by the way, and try to do 105 minutes on Saturday night before you go to bed. But just take 15 minutes a day and just say to each other, look, I, I just want to talk to you. I just want to see how you're doing. Because I love you, and I want to have a better relationship with you. So take 15 minutes to talk and pray. And, uh, and again, I, I, I guarantee you, you will have uh, more communication and better uh, communication in your Okay, so let's talk about some tough stuff. All right, that's easy. That's all easy stuff, right? <laughs> let's talk about the tough stuff. The, the last two blanks in your outline are these. Marriage, marriage is defined and designed by God. We're going to talk about the debate raging in our country over same-sex marriage. Our courtrooms and legislative halls 
have become battlegrounds over the definition of marriage in America. You know how many, um, you, you know, we, we're very, Americans tend to be very self-centered and very self-focused and self-absorbed. We know that. Um, do you know how many countries in the world uh, have legalized same-sex marriage? Seventeen. That's about one-tenth of the countries of our, on our planet have legalized same-sex marriage. So 17 countries, and in two countries, the United States and Mexico, it is legalized in certain jurisdictions, okay? So that's 19 countries that have some form of legalized same-sex marriage. Um, the tide of popular opinion has swung more in favor of same-sex marriage in the last eight years, more than you probably realize. Uh, in 2005, 28% of American adults were in favor of same-sex marriage, while 68% were opposed. In 2013, that number of 28% jumped to 50%. So now, roughly one in two Americans, 50% of people are in favor of same-sex marriage, 41% are opposed, and 9% are unsure. If you break it down just a little bit further, this is where, to me, it gets very interesting and, and very scary. 60 People 65 years or older, age 65 and older, 31% are in favor of same-sex marriage. 31% of people age 65 and older. So that's roughly, what, 69% who would say they were opposed or unsure. Among millennials, all right, these are people ages 18 to 29. So you've got 31% of people age 65 and older. Double that, and you'll have what millennials believe about same-sex marriage. 62% of people between the ages of 18 and 29 are in favor of same-sex, of legalizing same-sex marriage. This is not an issue that we can bury our heads in the sand as Christians and just hope it goes away. Because with the way the numbers are trending and the way the opinion polls are going and the way uh, legislation is occurring, um, I don't know if you saw it on the news last night. I was watching 9 o'clock news, and the Attorney General of the United States, Eric Holder, uh, said that he is going to, on Monday, send a memo out uh, to the Department of Justice saying that they will, the United States federal government will recognize legal, uh, will recognize same-sex marriages across the country. That came out like yesterday, last night, uh, in a little um, uh, speech that he gave. Um, and so things are progressing very quickly. We have buried our heads in the sand for too long. We have not had we have not had good discussions about this amongst ourselves. We have never, we don't talk about these things, right? We, we just don't talk about them. And therefore, uh, the, those who will talk about them, um, performers and actors and musicians and artists, uh, politicians, people who will talk about these things are going to determine the course of our country. Because, like I said, popular opinion has definitely swayed uh, toward um, redefining marriage. Now, here's what I want to say, okay? We as people, cannot redefine marriage because it wasn't our idea. Marriage is God's idea. He brought Adam and Eve together as husband and wife. He designed marriage for husbands and wives. And he defined marriage. This is God's definition of marriage, okay? This may step on, step on your toes whether or not you believe in same-sex marriage or not. God designed marriage as one man, one woman, for life. That is God's design for marriage. Now, like I said, we have messed this thing up with our sin. We have sinned. When sin entered the world, it messed everything up. We'll talk about that in just a second. But we have a duty as Christians to stand up for the biblical definition of marriage. We have a responsibility to uphold the biblical 
definition of marriage in our lives, and that is to love, honor, and cherish until death do us part. I, I, I got to admit, I love the sign that I saw on a church, okay? It was a church, uh, I believe it was out east, that said, we are sorry that gay marriage ruins the sanctity of your fourth marriage. Think about that for a second. You see, you can't have it both ways, okay? You can't say, oh, you know, same-sex marriage, we can't have that, yet you're on your fourth or fifth marriage. We're, we're, you know, you cannot say this defies the sanctity of marriage, whereas this is okay. And for too long, the church has done that. We'll, we'll, we'll turn a blind eye to certain things, which we shouldn't. We'll tolerate certain things, which we shouldn't. We'll tolerate certain sins, well, those are okay. We'll sweep these under the rug, but this, oh no, 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 no. And that's not right either. Um, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says this, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. If we are going to stand up for the biblical definition of marriage as one man, one woman, for life, then we have to be defined by it as well. That means, I'll be honest, no premarital sex. That is sex outside the bounds of marriage, and that goes against God's plan. And it means no extramarital affairs. It means no cheating on your spouse. It means no lustful addiction to pornography. That's cheating up here and cheating in here. You just can't do it. We must follow God's word as well. We, as Christians, must follow God's word. I shouldn't have to say that. That as Christians, we need to follow God's word. Now, let me say one last thing. We live in a world that needs grace. Okay? We live in a world that really, really needs grace. Um, For too long, there have been too many in our camp, in the Christian camp, that have been screaming at the top of their lungs that God hates these people and God hates those people. That is not what God is about. That is not what I'm about. That is not what the Bible is about. The Bible I read, the Bible I read says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That if you, the Bible I read says that if you will believe in Jesus and you will repent of your sins and you will confess your faith and be baptized, you will be forgiven and you will be given the Holy Spirit and given the power to live a faithful life. In John 1.14, It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We need to be like Jesus. We need to be like Jesus. We need to be full of grace and truth. We need to preach the truth in a way that is filled with grace. We need to preach God's word in a way that is filled with grace. And and we all need to repent, every single one of us. We need to repent and we need to live lives of faithful devotion. Every single one of us. We, God cannot tolerate sin. He cannot tolerate sin. And neither should we. In our own lives or in our world, we should never sweep sins under the rug just saying, oh, it's okay. Oh, this is okay. It's okay. It's not okay. Sin is not okay. Jesus died for sins. He suffered for sins. That's how okay it is not. That is how not okay it really is. It is not okay because it caused Jesus to die. But God's grace and his love is for everyone, and we need to share it with the world. So here's my challenge to you this morning, okay? Be mindful of two things. One, remember what you once were. Remember what you once were. You were a sinner without hope. You were a sinner lost in your sins, and you had no hope of salvation. But God didn't give up on you. 
God didn't give up on you, and he didn't leave you in your sin. He sent Jesus to die for your sins. Two, remember who Jesus is and what Jesus wants. Remember who, remember who you were and remember who Jesus is and what Jesus wants. Because remember, we've got to remember what this thing is all about. He desires a relationship with everyone. I like what 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says. It says, God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So before you get up on your theological or political high horse, remember what this is all about. It's about Jesus and his love for us, for you and for me and for the whole world. So let's tell the world, okay? Let's tell the world about Jesus' love so that they may be saved and they may, become, they may come to a repentant knowledge of the truth. Heavenly Father, these are tough issues. These are tough times in which we live. We don't know what to do. Um, we, we have buried our heads in the sand for too long. We have screamed hate at the top of our lungs for too long. When in reality, you love everyone and you want everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So God, I pray that you would help us to have discernment and wisdom to be full of grace and truth that we would not sweep sin under the rug, but that, Lord, we would deal with it in our own lives first, and then we would help others find Jesus. Help us to be committed to the biblical definition of marriage as you have defined it and designed it, that we might uh, honor you with our lives and our marriages. Help us to love each other and help us to love you more each day. Help us to be like Jesus, full of grace and truth. And it's in his name that we pray.